Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. On this week's episode, I'm excited to welcome a filmmaking duo who have already begun to make an impact in the world of genre. Individually, they've created or worked on such projects as Suspicions and There's a Monster at the End of This Film, as well as navigated the worlds of theater and James Franco. Together, they've just completed their new short, The Latent Image, and are already scheming their next steps. They've traveled from distant shores by way of Canada to be here today. Please welcome Alexander Birrell and Joshua Tonks. Hi, Hello. Michael. Hiya. Welcome, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. Thank Pleasure. you. Yeah, happy to be here. <laughs> oh, I'm excited to dig in because both of you individually have done a lot, and now together you've joined forces. Mm-hmm. And uh, Is this the first time you've ever done an interview together? Or? It is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah oh, it is. Wow. Well, here we are. It's like, uh, yeah, the very first time. Yes. yes. Well... well I like firsts. And as <laughs> such, let's kick it off with the same first question I ask every guest. And it's simply this. Why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. Why does horror connect to you? Why do you think the draw is? But why horror? Do you do you I can. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, for, well, I was... I, I guess I was really I was really scared of everything as a kid. Like I was, horror films scared me. It wasn't even horror films that scared me. Like The Little Mermaid scared me. And... The, the like the Cape Fear episode of The Simpsons really, really scared me. So I think for me, there was a real sense of achievement mm-hmm. of being able to get through them. Mm. Um, yeah. And so mm. I think I, I like I thought there was like a victory. And I guess I just made myself more and more obsessed with them and then sort of grew to love them. And now there's a there's not a lot that does scare me. It's almost the exact opposite of how I used to be when I was when I was a child. I don't actually, I always think it found me. I was just obsessed with films. I'm literally a child of the VCR. And from probably about the age of four, my favorite pastime was just to watch films. And it began with uh, the first sort of horror title would have been the original King Kong, where I was probably about four years old. And so it didn't matter the age of it. Right. Um, you know, it just fit right in there. And, and I literally did this, like, I'm really happy, actually, because I did this sort of, like, film history progression. So I went from that to, like, 1950s monster movies with Jaws in the middle of it, which was, like, a massive thing for me. Jaws made me decide I wanted to be a film director. Um, I think it's really interesting because not many kids probably have a actual cinema history timeline education where you start with the 40s and move forward so you did it right i, I suppose by way of film critic mm. uh but jaws jaws is the yep. is the that turning point the main one but I, I mean i was that young at the time i literally remember thinking i was i was about four years old and i remember thinking like how did they get the orchestra out to sea you know <laughs> to do the music at the because you know i had no concept of how anything worked and, well it's it's uh, funny you bring up jaws because that if i think back to horror movies that would have been the first one i would have seen as well mm. and i remember i had a blue carpet on my bedroom floor and i would run from the door to my bed and jump onto my bed because i was scared that the shark from jaws would get me <laughs> from my blue carpet <laughs> i think it's a valid fear <laughs> and you know now that we see that you can do any iteration of a shark motion picture mm-hmm. i feel like, like carpet sharks is not far away yeah. no I you you, so. you may have just cracked the next code i think that should be our next project yeah. actually i think we'll We'll discuss even like a dream sequence in something or like a I child's mean, fears. That to be to fair, life, we, we we've we've got a we've got a dream concept, haven't we? we where do. that could be very <laughs> legitimately valid. Because <laughs> that's important too. Actually, that's a me. Like I was eight years old when I saw the first Nightmare on Elm Street, and that was also a major life changing thing. 
Um, and they were still, it was, I mean, they'd kind of finished making it. It was, it was as Freddy's Dead was coming out, hmm. um, which... You is know. everybody's favorite, yeah, right? Exactly. <laughs> but but it did. I like the know. Goo Goo Dolls song. I like yeah. the Goo Goo Dolls song, and I like the montage on the end titles. That's it. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a it's. Uh, I always kind of view Freddy's Dead, and I know it has its fans too. And I'm I'm not I'm not here to knock any motion mm, picture. No, but I, it, it doesn't carry the nightmare title. No. It's called Freddy's Dead. So mm-hmm. in my mind, it sort of like lives in its own world. Yeah, it's sort of like really expensive fan fiction, mm-hmm. and in that way, that's fine by me. Yeah. And I think from for me, for the most part, being relatively new to film, um, knowing how hard it is to put one together. Yes. Yeah. It's just as simple as that. Like you can appreciate any piece of cinema, whether you like it or not, because it's hard. Like it's not easy to do. Like it's not, you don't just, That's you know. That's completely true. It also, that, that irks you sometimes in the other way though, because you think to yourself, wow, you know, all those people and all that effort and, <laughs> and you know. Why did it end up that way? You know, it, it can work like that right. as well. But yeah, but I'm sure you know it is all subjective yeah, because uh, it is. We talked about this when uh, we met up last week. Uh, mm-hmm. I had said the thing about any movie, especially mm-hmm. horror movies, is it's someone's favorite movie yeah, somewhere. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, there's this great story that um, John DeBello, who created Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, tells mm-hmm. about when they did the fourth movie, mm-hmm. Killer Tomatoes Eat France. <laughs> there were four of them. Wow. Uh, there, and they shot in France. They, mm-hmm. got a, they got a government grant to shoot. Amazing. You know, uh, There's a scene in Killer Tomatoes Eat France where they're on a boat in the river and the character's ringing a bell to try and get someone's attention. And the, the scripted line is someone says, who's that ringing in the Seine? Mm. Which is really a kind of okay pun, but he thought it, he thought it was great, and he was like, uh, "I wrote it, and then the premiere happens. I'm waiting for the line, and nobody laughed. Mm. No. And then one old guy just started cracking up, and he said, "I made the movie for that guy." Yeah, yeah. and that's like that, and that really kind of changed my perspective mm. on film because I now think. Who's that guy? Who's yeah. the guy that I made this for? Uh-huh. Because hopefully that guy's two guys, and then maybe those two guys are a hundred guys. Mm. But as long as your piece of art affects somebody, exactly. yeah. So I think I I completely agree with that. Mm. I think the the amount of stuff when I'm if I'm writing, I I'm like, well, if I like it, I'm not the only person in the world that's mm. n- like it's not humanly possible for me to be the only person that likes this. Someone right. somewhere will, and that always kind of gets me through. I'm like, no. I, I like it. I, I believe in this because I like it and I know other people will as well. So. But that's the nice thing about the genre as well. Like you can literally make something for the audience that you, you are, are and that you know is going to like mm. it as opposed to trying to worry about trying to please everyone apparently. you know. Right. So you see Jaws uh, and you know in that moment that mm. you want to make movies. Yes. How about you, Joshua? What was there a, um, a definitive point from fan to filmmaker? Well... My my sort of journey was always it's it's been sort of a long road. I I, I trained in musical theatre, mm-hmm. um, and that's sort of what I wanted to do. I always knew that I wanted to act, and I think watching films like Jaws and and movies like that, I I, I think I always when people ask me why I wanted to act, it was because I could never decide what I wanted to do as a job. Right. It was you know I wanted to do one thing this minute and something else the next, and you know, without sounding really cheesy, like as an actor, you can do that. You can, you can do all loads of different things. And I would watch those films and go, well, I, I could be like a scientist figuring out the, you know, sharks and whatever, you know what I mean? <laughs> like I would never do that in real life or want to do that, but like you can act it just for a moment. And so it, it's kind of, it, it, uh, it, yeah, it went that way. So 
when did you, uh, and this is a question for mm-hmm. Alexander, when did you start moving from the idea of, of conceptually wanting to be a filmmaker mm. to, I'm going to do it? I mean, as a child, I actually remember, like, I'd make little camcorder movies with some friends from school, and, mm-hmm. and you know, we'd do stuff like that and do little stop motions, you know, um, just with a video camera, like, not even properly. I remember my, my grandfather had, like, a, a phonograph, so, like, the Evil Dead phonograph that turns itself, you know? Right. And we'd do that by just stop-starting the video recorder and then, you know, little experiments like that. Uh, and then writing scripts, I, I wrote my first sort of slasher movie, when I was in um, at, towards the start of high school, I didn't even know script format or anything because it was a bit hard about then because it was like just pre sort of internet. And so to find out script format, I remember having to send away to this company in London that would do would sell you reprints of scripts, you know, and actually as they were. Um, and then I knew sort of in school, like when we did our specialist subjects towards the end of high school, you know, I made sure to do media and theater and everything that was as closely film related as possible. Um, I did film BA at uni, uh, university. And then after that, I kind of did this thing that, because it was always, it's not as common to do master's degrees in the, in the UK as it is in America. Like right. a lot of people think like, okay, they've done their university BA and then they go into the world. Right. So by that time, I discovered all of Italian cinema, which is like, became a major passion for me. I grew up with all Hollywood. And then as a teenager, I discovered the Italian cinema. It was like, wow, this is amazing. This is the thing that somehow it just spoke to me a bit more at that time. And it's since balanced out completely. But at that time, that was the one. Why Um, Italian cinema? You know, I often ask myself that question. It just feels somehow, and this is very strange. (laughs) I can't explain it. It feels more relatable somehow. Like when people go on about how um, maybe over the top or unrealistic the people behave in in those films, I'm often like, really, really? Like that, that just seems like the mo- you know very natural somehow. Which yeah. Well, speaking as an Italian person, if you've ever had dinner with a group of Italians, that's pretty normal <laughs> behavior. <laughs> uh, but it was Suspiria was the big first one. Like I remember that came out. And I think at the time, if I'm not mistaken, it was the first time it had been available on VHS for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I would have been about 11. Um, And I saw it and and I remember thinking, this is amazing. I've never seen a film like this. I remember being quite scared at first. Right. um, Just because it was a foreign film. And I remember thinking, oh, am I going to have wasted like my my allowance by buying this videotape that is like it's foreign and I'm not going to be bored. And, you know, and (laughs) I'm so glad that like people in other countries have aversions to foreign films as well, because I always viewed that as a uniquely American issue. No, I think it's an English speaking issue. We don't want to have to read. our I always want to slap people when they say (laughs) that. You have no idea. Like, I love a good subtitled film. Uh, I can't watch them in bed because yeah. I fall asleep. I can watch anything mm-hmm. in bed. That's my life problem. Uh, <laughs> so I'm 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 trying to like merge your timelines so we yeah. can talk to it. Yeah. When you, so you uh, you're in theater. You, I was yeah. And when did you immediately engage in theater in school? Was that always something you were passionate <laughs> yeah. about? Because that was what was available. Like right. you know you you. I was from Birmingham, which is in the West Midlands of the UK, but where I grew up was kind of like a a small town, basically. Um, And there's loads and loads of drama clubs and theatre clubs, and I just immersed myself in that constantly. And, you know, I I danced and I sang and I enjoyed doing that just as much. Right. Um, And then the reason I decided to go to musical theatre school was because, again, I couldn't decide out of the three which one I wanted to focus on. Right. And it wasn't really until I 
graduated that I realized that, well, actually musical theater is a, a genre within itself. Right. You know, you can be very good at acting, singing and dancing, but to be good at musical theater, that's, that's a hugely different skill set. Right. Um, and it's not something that I, um, dislike. I, I absolutely love doing that, but the things I would geek out about, the things that I would talk about, it, it wasn't necessarily Steven Sondheim. It was Steven Spielberg. It was Wes Craven. It was, the, you know, uh, it was Joss Whedon. It was all of that kind of stuff. They were the things that I really knew and really kind of connected to. Um, but it was just the nature of what was available to me as a child right. that I kind of fell down one path. There have been guests in the past, and I'll throw this to both of you, who have made the correlation that there is a kinship between the world of theater and even musical theater and horror. Do you believe that to be true? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I also completely agree. Unfortunately, I don't know anywhere near as much about theater as I'd like to. Right. Um, was never that it's like what Josh said about just what's available to you. Like I didn't have a, the kind of background. Like, I come from a background, luckily, with sort of very liberal family that let me watch. You know, they they were like, "Oh yeah, of course, it's normal." It's like you know, right? No um, forbidden movies. For no, you. none at all. No, um, no, there was no sense of that. Like I'd talk about it with my family and you know things like this. But in terms of theatre, it was always that thing that like if it was a, a special occasion or something for mm. school or you know then maybe it'd be a trip to the theater but it was never anything we did whereas to go to the cinema it was like every weekend and to get a videotape was like every week you know it was like right. I, was, mm-hmm. I was in a very film kind of centric thing but yeah yeah can, of course there's a kinship yeah definitely. i didn't um i was gonna i didn't have much uh like there was much wasn't much censorship for me either yeah. i was just i was too frightened to watch things mm. like i wouldn't I was so sensible. I was like, well, no, I'm not. I'm not 15 yet. So why would I, why would I, like, I was so well behaved in regards to that. Whereas all my friends would watch them. And I get more scared about things because of what my friends would tell me about them and hype myself up. Like, for me, the, like, you talk about Jaws Mm. being a turning point. For me, it was Scream. Like, Mm. Scream was the movie that everybody watched. And, everybody spoke about, like, on the playground at break times. That was the movie. And, I remember being at a friend's house and they put on a section of it and I made them turn it off because I'd, I'd wound myself up so much and got so terrified before I'd even seen it. Right. And I, you know, my, my neighbor, um, had both Scream and Scream 2 on VHS and I would, I would like look at the box and like analyze and imagine what this incredible film would be like and finally built up the courage to watch it. And, oh, I didn't watch the first scene. I skipped, I fast forwarded through the whole Drew Barrymore sequence and, went from and watched the rest of it and was so proud um, and then finally went back. And then for the rest of my adolescence, it was like that that is the film that I would show everyone that I knew everything about that I would. So that that's the that's the definitive film for me. And it's the film that I would always say is my favorite, like out of any it's any movie. Scream is it? Yeah, I think so. Purely because and, I, you know, you can take a step back and be objective and go, there's probably better made films. There are probably more influential films. But if I'm talking personally, mm-hmm. um, on a completely personal level, then that that film, purely because of its impact on me as a child and what I've wanted to do creatively, um, it would be that. Mm. What right. I, th- I think is really important about Scream that I, I feel like audiences who discover it today will never really grasp is that in 1997, when the movie came out, Horror sort of was not being really embraced. It was sort of 
you know, uh, a gratuitous, exploitative, excessive genre that uh, after the 80s had kind of had had their heyday, uh, people at the box office were over. Mm -hmm. And it took uh, Wes Craven and Kevin Williamson to sort of make fun of the genre in this Mm -hmm. satirical way. And uh, that that meta version of horror reignited the spark. Mm-hmm. But as these things do, then every movie that followed tried to look like Scream. Exactly. Yeah. But, but when, when you, you saw, saw Scream, when it came out, there was nothing that looked like it no, yet. No, no, no. And so I've, I've, you know, I talk to uh, younger kids, and they'll be like, "Well, it's okay." I'm like, oh, "I get that. I do understand." Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but you, you have, have to understand that, like, when that phone rang, mm-hmm. the first time you saw it, you didn't know what was going to happen, and yeah. that was kind of. A, a changing point. So I do think it's a very influential yeah. film. Well, that was the second film I snuck into in the cinema underage to get to see. <laughs> and what was the first? Uh, Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Um, wow, you did a Wes Craven meta double bill. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And actually, um, New Nightmare, I think, was only a 15 in the UK, but Scream was an 18. So, mm-hmm. yeah, because we have the different rating system and everything. Yeah. T- well, uh, tell me about that. How's, how is the rating system oh, well, different? Well, we have U, PG, um, P, uh, 12. Well, and then when, when Spider-Man came out, the Sam Raimi Spider-Man, it, yeah. that created 12A, mm-hmm. which means that if, I think if you're younger than 12, you, you can go with an adult. With yeah. Yeah. Whereas with if it's um, just 12, you can go on your own. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and then there's, there's 15, 15 and then 18. Uh, what was it about Sam Raimi's Spider-Man that got the caveat? They're like, well, you can go if you're 12, but mom and dad need to go. I'm not sure. I think, it's, I think it was probably a little bit more violent and action-packed than had been previously like done yeah. but because it was a kids movie in right. essence they still want to bring in a younger crowd for box mm-hmm. office and but everything's got more i don't know it's like now jaws is a 12 if you buy it on video right. everything yeah it was, it was a pg a... um so, so yeah, yeah everything yeah. gets more and unless actually no it doesn't always do that because now the friday the 13th sequels and the nightmare on elm street sequels are all 15 mm-hmm. and, they and they were, were all 18 eight. so it's strange how the rating system changed because i look at uh the old Hammer horror films, mm. they're all rated G here yeah. now. Mm-hmm. But, but, you know, the idea that... I, I just watched um, Dracula, Prince of Darkness the other day, mm-hmm. and there's blood what? galore and boobs, and I'm like, how's this a G? Oh, well, <laughs> sex in the UK, actually. We, we, we actually talked we about We spoke this about this before, in the yeah. cab. Uh, it was always not really considered anything or censored. Like, they were always fine with sexual content. Um, it's violence. Yeah. yeah. Violence. yeah. yeah. Well, it was the UK that instituted the video nasty. Yes, yeah. Uh, do you want to talk about that? I've never had Definitely. guests talk I mean, about video nasties before. It, yeah, it's kind of an obsession of mine because um, I'm I'm about seven years older than Josh, which is why we have a slightly sort of different perspective on on um, you know like when he was watching Scream as one of his very first movies as a as a small child, I was sneaking into the cinema. So that right. we out. we have this debate constantly <laughs> yeah. the the 80s versus 90s debate. Is, but we won't. We'll we'll continue on with video mm. nasties because I'm kind of obsessed <laughs> with the 80s. It's like a passion. Like I love it. You know, right. I love the way it looks. I love the the way it sounds i love the movies i love the horror from it um and because i was sort of allowed to watch these movies so young and because as you just said about scream in the 90s there was this huge genre drought and so i spent most of the 90s up to the scream era watching vhs tapes of 80s horror movies because there were no 90s ones and if there were they they were kind of mainstream and, and tame and i don't know um with exceptions, of course. And right. so the video nasties debate was very important to me as like a piece of history. Um, also because, I mean, my family is very left wing. My city, Liverpool, is very left wing. It's famous for being like a, a socialist paradise, you know. So 
Um, anything that was the conservative government, Margaret Thatcher, it was all intensely hated. Um, and that was a clear representation of that kind of that kind of attitude. You know, the idea that we can't trust ordinary people to to have the entertainment they want. It'll make them into rampaging right. crazies. So, and it was also when you look at it, it's just such a clear example of how the major companies can get control back again because nearly all the video nasties like censored and banned tapes right. were Italian, Spanish, or very low budget independent American. It was never a studio film. It was never, you know. And so for uh, American listeners or younger listeners who don't necessarily know what the video nasty was, mm. six, oh, yeah. 16 movies? Uh, no, I think it was at like 72. Wow. Yeah. I'll take that. Mm. I like censorship sells a film as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> uh, and so there's 72 movies. Mm-hmm. And they were reviewed by the British government and yep. put on this list, a video yes. nasties list, and then they were banned. Well, it what or, how, yeah. they were all available. So right. um, in, in the UK since forever, if you were having a cinema release, you'd right. be classified. It was a voluntary thing, like in America, right. and you get an age rating. When video came out, say 77, 78, there was no classification at all. So all these films that um, either weren't ever on the cinema or that were censored on the cinema were suddenly all available and cut. Um, and it just carried on that way until 1983, when there was this kind of media-created witch hunt about um, these violent films, sexual films, what kind of effect is it going to have on children, because this isn't the arena of adults, supposedly, like in the home where there are video recorders, there are also children, so they can see it. Um, and there was this lady, this um, very unusual figure in British history called Mary Whitehouse, who was kind of this lady in her 60s or 70s, very prim and proper, very religious. And she like spearheaded this campaign with the government, which fit in nicely with the Margaret Thatcher era um, of like moral crusading against these movies. And somehow it succeeded and she got a, a politician to put forward a private member's bill which is kind of like where a politician can put forward something himself for it to be voted on. And it was about classifying videotapes. Um, and they drew up this list um, of these supposedly not good films, things like Zombie Flesh Eaters, like Lucio Fulci's Zombie and, and many, many films, um, which they thought were inappropriate. And they were all instantly seized and then either recut into shorter versions or banned completely. And then what happened was the knock-on effect was that certain films, um, certain studios even, would like not put a film on videotape in Britain. Like The Exorcist, for example, was never banned in Britain. It was on the cinema in Britain. But when they were, Warner Brothers were thinking about putting out a videotape release in the early 80s, it was kind of not the moment. And so they said, we won't do it. And then they never did it. So you could never have a videotape of The Exorcist in the UK until about 1998. That's wild. Yeah. I mean, you could get it from another country. It's free country. Right. They can't stop you doing anything you want. But you couldn't just go to the shop and buy it. Well, yeah, it's wild that you're going to have to like go to Spain to get yeah, The Exorcist. exactly. Uh, what I love about this mentality of, of politicians uh, who try and limit art is as a filmmaker who who deals in shocking subject matter, I mean, yes, it's frustrating because it limits the ability for something to be seen. But it's sort of like if we go out and make a movie in the backyard and it's Mm -hmm. just okay, but the content is violent and all of a sudden a politician is like, this is banned. Mm -hmm. They just gave us the greatest publicity because as a horror fan, the second someone tells me that I can't see something or that it's too much or that you're not supposed to watch it, Uh I think that the Video Nasties list probably just helped all of those filmmakers mm. go from 
working filmmakers to quickly legends in well, some it makes cases. them it makes them cool yeah. yeah anything that's like the opposite of the establishment is cool mm-hmm. you know so yeah absolutely but it I mean, would be the best free promotion you could ever want but the terrible i mean like people even went to prison this is like the really famous case of a video distributor and you know it's called in britain nightmares in a damaged brain mm. and i think in america it's just called nightmare right the romano scavellini film the, yes yeah and um, there was a distributor who dared to put out the uncut version on videotape, which was something stupid like 50 seconds longer than the approved classified version. Oh, heavens. And he actually went to prison. That was like the hysteria of this thing, you know? <sighs> <laughs> Meanwhile, mm. in a world of real problems. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> so we, we talked, talked about, about the, the the divide between 80s and 90s mm. horror. And mm. of course you knew I was going to get here at some point because it's kind of the theme of the show. Mm. But um, you found identity mm-hmm. in this the eras of horror that yeah. you watched. Do you find as uh, LGBT identifying filmmakers, mm-hmm. the horror that you gravitated to in some way was related to the queer identity? Definitely. I mean, yeah. every... Every character, if you'd have spoken to teenage me, every character I identified with in the entire world was a teenage girl. <laughs> same. I was exactly the same. Um, even before it was even horror, like, and it kind of went into that, it would be, it would be the female characters that I responded to because the, the guys just didn't, they didn't do what no. I did. They weren't the same as me. I was, I was different to them. So, yeah. I love that. Who were, who were some of the uh, girls that you... Really oh my, held up. My all-time favorite is Nancy Thompson. You know, Heather Langenkamp in the original Nightmare. I think she's the greatest of the final girls, without a doubt. Um, yeah. And and then, of course, there's there's uh, Kirsty from the Hellraiser movies. There's Laurie from Halloween. Uh, Amy Steele as Ginny in Friday 2 was always a favorite. Um, and Amy Steele in, in April Fool's Day as... I think it's Kit, if I'm right. But yeah, as well. Yeah. yeah. Not Muffy St. John. <laughs> no. <laughs> How about you? Oh, um, it was Buffy. Like my more TV than um, more TV than film, but yeah, it, it was Buffy. I was obsessed with that show and the um, that you know that character. I mean, there's a there's a there's a direct correlation. Like she comes out to her mother when she says that she's the Slayer. You know, right? So I didn't even understand that watching that as a kid, but as you know you watch it now and you're like oh it's it's her coming out. You know, have you tried not being the Slayer? You yeah, know? I remember that moment. That yeah. was really good. You know and the the fact that she has this thing that she can't change about herself it was that um and i think that's why i so directly related to that character in particular what i really like and i don't think it it gets discussed enough since you mentioned buffy in the moment that she uh has this revelation with joyce her mom um is that it was handled in a very intelligent way for i think queer kids uh in that of course, immediately Joyce doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. love the idea. Yeah. But she loves her daughter. So over the arc of the character, we see her come around and embrace yeah. it. And that that's really smart because it's dealing with a queer issue in a in a sort of masked way. Mm-hmm. But as you said, kids at home can watch it and be like, uh, yeah. oh, maybe my mom will come around to me as well. Yeah. And uh, Ultimately, I think that her mother, who could have been a one-note character in the show, became one of the most poignant characters she in the really show. She really did, especially for, like, if you watch the show and you break down the, the things that Joyce does and says to her daughter, she's not the best mother. Oh, but who is? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Exa- exactly. And 
but for some reason, because she loves her so unconditionally, no matter what, right. that all of that just falls away and it, it doesn't matter like she loves her and the thing i also find like just on the flip side of it is the way that buffy comes to terms with the fact that she is the slayer you know but the, particularly in the early years she always talks about it as a job and something right. that's been enforced upon her that she has to do and doesn't really want to and it's it's after she you know quote unquote comes out you know the next episode after that um, which is the first episode of season three, she she says, I'm Buffy, the vampire slayer, and you are. And it's the first time that she actually, she's like, it's not a job, it's who I am. Right. And then the conversation she later has with Joyce when the character of Faith is introduced that gives her the opportunity to maybe um, maybe take a step back from the slaying, you know, the, the stuff that she's doing at night. Um, she... Um, she doesn't want to. She's like, no, it's 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 who I am. And she starts to identify with that. And I think that's just as important. She accepts herself for her differences. I, yeah, Buffy, like the more I think about it, and this is probably a discussion for my comrades over at Slayer Fest 98 more than <laughs> us, but uh, I think that... Um, it is all throughout a very queer identifying show yeah. because as we know queer doesn't necessarily mean gay it can mean no, many right. different things uh, and I just want to be one of one of the first although I'm sure I'm not to comment on uh, Faith being a sexually fluid character hmm. it doesn't get brought up enough but when we're when we're introduced to Faith she's kind of like yeah yeah let's do it mm-hmm. whatever whatever <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> It's, it, you know, her character is a little bit, I, I think, too defined by that aspect. Because, sure. But because it's she's a supporting character in a show with a huge ensemble, there's only so much you can do. Right. She's not the lead. It's not Faith the Vampire Slayer. So, but yeah, exactly. Exactly. That it's it's kind of cool. It's whatever. And you've introduced me to Buffy a yeah. lot like, over the past year. Because I, I remember, actually, I had this strange thing, maybe just being a bit older or maybe just whatever, but I, I remember like consciously rejecting that kind of action-oriented horror that crept in, which I now really appreciate and love. But at the time, I was like, hang on, hang on. That isn't how you deal with horror (laughs) movie monsters. You're supposed to be like, you're supposed to survive. Yeah, but you're like, you're supposed to be vulnerable and like, you know, like the 80s, like Final Girls. Like, And I couldn't get used to that sort of action element that crept into the genre, which I now really appreciate and really like. But I remember at the time, that was a big sort of thing to me. It felt like someone else was taking over the a different type of a different type of approach to the genre, right. you know? And, That's interesting yeah. that you were resistant to it, though. Mm. Because I feel like when you go back and look at some of the the women that you referenced mm. as being important to you, Nancy. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, Nancy's trying to survive, and then there's that moment where she turns it around. Yeah. And so I, I think the seeds of Buffy are all there along oh, the way. They are. Yeah, yeah. It, it's just that it was... We were talking about it with Nightmare 4, actually, the other day, which is one of my favorites. And you have Al, like, I feel like it's single-handedly invented that kind of action heroine right. with Alice and all the martial arts and uh-huh. everything. But what it does is it, it both invents it and dismantles it in the same movie. It's amazing, like, because it's mind over matter. And she realizes, actually, no, I'm not going to Jean-Claude Van Damme my way out of this. I've got to, like, you know. <laughs> right. um, And so I suppose, like, as I say, I really appreciate it now and really enjoy it. But I, I do remember at the time being like... You know, I don't want to watch an action movie. I want to watch, watch a horror movie. movie. Yeah, I, I just remember feeling like that. That's interesting. I uh, I appreciate. I love Nightmare Four, mm. and I know exactly the moment you're talking about because there's the moment where it's the montage where she's yeah. like putting, basically putting on her battle armor mm-hmm. to go yep. fight mm-hmm. Freddy. And uh, I remember the first time I saw that. Speaking of girls, that I was like, oh my, 
because it is. It was just sort of like this take back the night kind of mm-hmm. moment that yeah. I really uh, love. And uh, from that point on, I always wanted those kind of characters yeah. in movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that montage especially because it's like such a reference to commando and rocky four and all that stuff you know right. but it's like the exact opposite she's like getting ready in front of a fish tank and like you know it's brilliant well, well it's i i think that I, I what i love about that and it's it's something that i've put into the 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 stuff that we're collaborating on the the first script that i've right. that that i wrote has that moment in and i think it goes back to almost um it's almost something like out of a fairy tale which is where you kind of you get beaten down so much and then you have to go into the woods to face the monster. And right. Nancy does it in the first one when she builds all of the traps. And it's it's the same scene, but it's just we've like mm. upped it. We've upped the stakes of it because it's a sequel. So you have to kind of, you know, kind of expand it and make it bigger. But it's in essence, it's that moment. It's that I've hit rock bottom and now I have to I have to do this myself. I have to confront the yeah. bad guy. Um and I love any moment like that. It's mm. so satisfying. It is. Well, it's because it's a reclaiming of your identity, mm-hmm. which I think is another thing that I think draws uh, queer individuals mm-hmm. to horror because we see that moment, the, these characters, Amy Steele's character, Ginny, is a tomboy mm-hmm. who sort of is very outside of the group. Yeah. yeah. Or Alice is, is a mm-hmm. nerd at school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you see that moment where they're sort of outsiders in their own world And then this extra thing happens the kind of like the heightened uh, darkness Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that they then turn around and fight back. And I guess when you're still trying to figure yourself out, that's very appealing. Um, And they tend to figure it out as well in a way that isn't the classic sort of, for lack of a better word, because I can't think of of a good term, but like that classic kind of macho, masculine, okay, I'm going to fight my way out of this. Right. It's like they really have to figure something out. And like with Ginny, it's a perfect example. I always think of that. Like, I love that ending, that climax so, so much where, you know, she, she has to save Paul and she grabs the machete and like, and she really doesn't want to do it. Right. You know, but she has to. It's like, you know, and, and it's a different moment than say... Well, we we talk about this a lot and we talk about how maybe more modern films have sort of missed the point of that a little bit in the sense that what they want to just see is that character that turns around and and kicks some ass. But they never they never take in the magnitude of what that actually entails of literally this this kind of, you know, for lack of a better term, normal person that hasn't really experienced a lot, usually a teenager, then having to murder someone and becoming what... almost doing exactly the same that this killer has done for the whole film and you know it gets like a you know a fist pump moment in in the in the cinema but when it when you see it in earlier films these characters don't want to be doing that it's why right laurie drops the knife yeah, in I halloween completely understood that like why would you want to hold the knife that has just been used to kill your friends and you've just had to stab someone and you know and people are screaming don't drop the knife don't drop the knife right. and it's like but this is an instrument of death that you have in your hand that you don't want to be a part of. Um, and it makes perfect sense why that would happen. I think as we've, as we've become more savvy, mm. you know, people m- misinterpret that as they want the, the fist bump moment rather than the actual emotional moment that comes with it. Right. I think that we have really broken down the secret action heroine within <laughs> the final girl. Uh, 
But in that discussion, you you talked about how you both bring that to your work Mm -hmm. and how in your collaboration, that's something you're both interested in. Mm -hmm. So let's jump ahead on the timeline. We've talked a little bit about your your paths. Mm -hmm. How did you two meet and what made you decide to work together? Well, we met via Twitter, didn't we? We did. Like, like, just, just through comments yeah. on horror films and then also a short film you were working on in London. Yeah. Which I, I was doing, um, just for fun, um, with some mates of mine. I was working in a theatre, um, not as an actor, because who does? But I was, <laughs> I was working um, um, in the bar and the theatre we were in went dark, which means we didn't have a show for 10 days and they were doing some refurbishments. And I spoke to the managers and said, could we film? And they were like, yeah, that's fine. And um, I got all of the ushers together and over Christmas wrote this kind of little kind of 10 page short called Stage Fright, um, in which um, it's the last night of a of a theatre that's closing down and all the ushers are kind of tidying up and one of the, the radios is missing and they have to get everything back and out. You know, it's got to go back to where it all came from. So they, they basically split up and go search for this radio um, and one by one, it's almost like little individual sequences, but one by one they kind of get picked off and then there's a kind of a Scream 2-esque finale reveal where it was one of the ushers that was behind it all. And we did that and um, I had delusions of it being like a big deal. So I was kind of, you know, doing a lot on social media and that's how Alex mm. reached out. And more than, actually more than the details of the short film, it was when I discovered your reviews of other horror movies. Yeah. And I thought, oh, yeah, this is a guy I'd like to talk to, even if, you know, regardless. Mm-hmm. And then we just arranged a meeting, didn't we? And then I came yeah. down to the theater where you were working and met you. And then we sort of took it from there. Yeah. And then over the course of what was 2017? It was we, January 2017. Yeah. We collaborated just on ideas. We would we would send scripts that we'd written to each other and sort of note them and pass right. them back. And what do you think about this? Cause I'd, I'd sort of decided, you know, um, that I was going to write as well because it was a way of being creative for free rather right. than going and doing dancing and singing classes where you have to pay money. It's like, well, I can, I can do this for free at home. And so and started was, doing that. It was such a relief when I saw Josh's writing as well, because like I've, I've searched high and low for collaborators, you know, and you meet so many people who want to, and then they actually don't, or right. they want to, and they don't know what it means or, you know, or they want to. And then you, they either read my stuff and don't like it, or I read their stuff and I'm like, Oh God. Or they just want to do, they just want to do their own thing. Yeah. Like they right. want someone else to just help them do what they want to do mm-hmm. rather than actually collaborating. Yeah. yeah. Whereas I remember reading yours and I was like, wow. Like, this Aww. is, you know, like, this is excellent. Nice. So, yeah. And, um, I mean, same. You'd like, <laughs> if we're just gonna, like, <laughs> you're amazing. <laughs> we like to bring people together, but you're already brought together. <laughs> just togetherness mm. as a theme here mm. on Dead Fulfilled. Because I kind of went all around the houses with it. Like, as I told you, like, after I finished university, I went off to Italy and I thought, okay, I'm gonna crack the Italian film industry. Right. Get there just in time to discover the Italian film industry was dead. <laughs> um, I actually remember the the first when I very first went out there with any kind of idea. Because I went a few times, and you know, I went in my gap year from university, where you know, I just sort of worked in a in a youth hostel for a year while exploring around. You know. Um, and I remember being in touch with Nick Alexander, who I'm sure genre fans know is the guy in charge of the dubbing of, you know, Suspiria, Deep Red, everything. He's been an Englishman who's been in Italy forever. And uh, he was really nice. He sent me an email. He was going to get me to come down to the facility, like Phonoroma or whatever it was called. And then the next week I get an email from his daughter and he just literally died. And she was writing to say, you know, oh, sorry, He's, you know, and, and which of course was really sad, but it was kind of like, the introduction for them what i discovered that like you know unfortunately yeah. 
I mean, Michele Suave makes TV movies now. Lamberto right. Barva is almost retired. Dario Argento can't get a film financed. And when he does, it's it's so low budget, you know. So, right. I mean, I have this fantasy that if it was like 1980 and had gone over there, I could have like talked my way into, you know, something. <laughs> but certainly not when I went. It was, it was all over. Um, having said that, because Italy's Italy, uh, as well as amazing life experiences, um, I got to shoot 16mm for the first time out there. I got to shoot a horror-themed music video as director, which was um, for just this small Italian band who aren't even together anymore. But that was the first time I got to shoot 35mm. And, um, you know, classic Italian fashion, we couldn't afford it. Right. And we didn't have any experience with 35 But they were like, yeah, it's a, it's a public holiday. No one's using it anyway. Like, go ahead. We didn't even have, like, insurance for the for the camera. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, it was, it was, and it was a wonderful experience. Um, so that was very useful. Right. Uh, and I worked on quite a few short films out there and one independent horror film as DP, which was American financed for the direct-to-DVD market which then led me to doing uh, a sort of a first DIY feature as director, which was also for Direct's DVD. And was that um, Brain Cell? It was. That was Brain Cell. All right. Let's talk a little bit about Brain Cell. Mm. It's a feature film that you yes. directed mm-hmm. uh, starring Joe Zazzo. Joe Zazzo, Elena. Um, oh, my God. That's so terrible. I can't remember her name now. But it's just Rain Brown's ago, but... in it. Rain yeah. Brown's yeah. in it, yeah. yeah. And Eileen Daly. Um Matt um, and Matt Berry's Matt Berry, in a, who is, yeah. I have some questions about that mm-hmm. because Matt Berry is is kind of hugely famous. Well, he was famous then as well, but yeah. he he was a friend of Eileen's, and um, she said, "Oh, can I send him the script because he might want to do a cameo because he's going to come and because we shot basically some of it was shot in Naples in Italy, which was where I was living at the time, mm-hmm. and then the rest of it shot in my hometown of Liverpool in England." Um, and Eileen's from London came up to Liverpool for the shoot and said that her friend Matt would like to visit her there and so he read the script and he said oh yeah I'll do this this part and he shot for one one like one whole day like a proper sort of you know first thing in the morning until last thing at night day and then that was it yeah yeah, I, I love Matt Berry. Mm-hmm. I'm actually a fan of his music because he releases yeah. albums but he uh, was uh on Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, which right. for horror fans oh. uh, is, is definitely a, a hidden gem to check out, mm-hmm. as well as the IT crowd. Uh, we also had an actor as well called Leon Lopez, who's from Liverpool. And at the time, he was the star of a, a big soap opera in the UK. Um, and I just mentioned which him one? because, well, he was the star of Brookside. And, was he? And then he went into Hollyoaks. <laughs> um, oh, Brookside. Yeah. But the thing is, he has become a director now, as well as an actor. And he directed an excellent um, LGBT-themed film, like a love story. Really beautiful, independent one that was on the, the BFI Flair Festival in London, which is a big sort of, um, you know, LGBTQ like film festival through the British Film Institute. Um, and I can't remember the title, but people who are interested, like, just look at Leon Lopez and you'll see, you know, he's done some great stuff. And so tell me about the experience of making this movie, because you called it a DIY project yes. and you had just been shooting in Italy you, yep. and you shot some of it there. Yes, only a small part of it in, in my old apartment, actually. But yeah, we'd made this um, sort of giallo film called Darkness Around Roberta, mm-hmm. um, which was directed by Giovanni Pianigiani, who's done a variety of genre films over the years. And it was produced by Joe Zazzo. Rain Brown was also in it and Eileen. Right. Um, they all came over to Italy and they were looking for a director of photography and an Italian friend of mine who was kind of 
sort of above their pay grade, so to speak, like recommended me because they'd asked him and he said, oh, well, no, but I have this this friend from England and it fit that I could also speak English. Right. So we shoot this Jallo film for two and a half, three weeks uh, in the Naples area. And we just had, I mean, of course, it was independent cinema, so it was all in the trenches, but we had a great time. And all the time I'm talking to Joe and he's talking to me about genre films. And it's like, he said, if you ever have any ideas, I'd love to make a genre film in England. Um, so basically me and, and an Italian friend came up, brainstormed ideas and, and told him various ideas. And he was like, well, he, he thought he wanted to do a, a, a zombie piece. And he thought about maybe a sort of a mad scientist type thing as well. And so essentially... I just went away with those elements and, and knowing who three of the cast would be and, and came up with this sort of confection that is brain cell. Um, thinking a lot about actually early Cronenberg films. Right. Um, which isn't my first instinct as a genre filmmaker. Um, I Interesting. I tend to go more to, I like slasher movies. I like Jolly. I like, I like, I mean, I do love supernatural stories too, but my, I gravitate more towards stories about a killer you you or... you ground them all in reality yeah. like the mm. they there's there's there tends to be a thriller element mm. and a, a a slow burn element yes. to them there's yeah. not it's not boom boom, it's boom, not, boom. no yeah. it's not and there's and it's meticulous though um mm. i mean my favorite directors are like john carpenter brian de Palma, yeah. and Argento, so that says a lot about right. mm. yeah so you made that project. It did play festivals. Yes, and then it got released through Joe's own label, I think, in the States. And then, yeah, I mean... And then what was your trajectory afterwards? Because it's a little unusual for someone who just directed a feature. Mm. So tell us about that. Well, to be honest, I actually didn't know at the time because there was no real, what I call sort of DIY direct-to-DVD market in the UK. And I mean that with a lot of respect. But then right. at the time, I discovered that in the States, there was. It right. was like this huge market where like films in the back of Fangoria magazine and films that you would get direct from websites. And so it was an introduction to that, which was great. But at the same time, I also kind of realized, you know, that kind of story could have been wonderful for a young director if it was, say, 1976 and it was on the drive-in and on. But it, it wasn't that time anymore. So while I had this material now, I felt like that would be a great moment to get into film school. Right. Because I had this, it wasn't, the only film that I then could have possibly gone on to would have been another film of the same type, which would have been fine, but I didn't see how that would have led me to do anything on a larger scale. Right. Um, and also, you know, I'm not from a wealthy background. So, the, I mean, film school is very expensive. And the idea of going, like, just by paying for it at the time, straight after university would have been impossible. Whereas, um with having brain cell material, the other stuff I'd done in Italy, I could apply for a scholarship. Right. Um, so essentially that's what I did. Uh, and I, I decided that Italy had sort of run its course. I realized I wasn't really going to go any further, as I said about the state of the film industry and everything. And uh, I thought, okay, I'll move back to the UK and I'll apply to the two main film schools there, which are the National Film and Television School and the London Film School, which is actually the oldest one. Um and I never got to apply to the National Film and Television School because I applied to the London Film School first and they basically gave me the interview a week later and accepted me a week after that. So it was just I was going there. Um, I love that. I just love the trajectory of you make a feature film and then you go to film school, mm. but you also have the unique opportunity that you have things to present going yes. into film school, which automatically gives you an edge because film school is good, I think, for 
the practical yes. side of filmmaking, but there are things that you never learn in film school that you can only learn on the set of a movie. And you walked into film school with that knowledge. Uh, so I just think that's really, uh, for listeners out there who um, are interested in the world of indie filmmaking, I like this story because it shows that there's no like necessarily point A to point B. You no. can carve your own path, mm-hmm. and you seem to be doing that. Yeah, well, I mean, the great thing about it was it, it gave me a sense of sort of the, the difficulties of the set because in film school it can all appear so... They, they basically teach you, of course, in the, in the classic tradition. Right. They teach you everyone's individual job and, you know, the time it takes and, and you've got all the professional equipment. And, right. Um, which is wonderful because you then know that, you know, you know how to use all this stuff and you know how it should be, but it doesn't mean it's going to be like that. Right. Because, you know, if you're not immediately walking onto like a studio film or something, you're not going to have that. You're going to have right. to do it yourself. Um, and at the same time, it also gives you a sense of what you can do without and how, you know, if you if you really are a, a pre-planner, which I am, um, you know that you can grab a shot in the corner of a room on your own and it'll edit into the the massive conversation that needed the full crew and took a week. You know? Right. And it'll be exactly the same. No one will ever know the difference. Um so yeah, that was definitely a nice part of having that experience in advance, definitely. And then it seems like you've just transitioned into a whole new world of how you do film since. Because yes. yes. you did your short suspicions, mm-hmm. which I know that you were hoping to turn into a feature yes. at some point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, you two came together to make latent images. We did. Which I want to talk about in just a second. Yeah. But before we jump into that, mm-hmm. uh, something I mentioned in the intro that I know will be of interest to listeners, especially because we just got a story about him a couple weeks ago on the show. Uh, I'm going to mention a name and I want you to Tell me about your connection to him. Okay. Tell me about James Franco. Oh, yes. Well, this was... <laughs> um, it's funny. I actually forgot about that until you mentioned it. Yeah, it's my, my other sort of... my The largest project in terms of scale, actually, that I've worked on so far is a portmanteau kind of compilation horror film, Creepshow style, called Horror Time, mm-hmm. um, which hasn't come out yet. And it's supposed to be coming out this year. Um, like I've seen the final cut. It's all done. We're just waiting for updates. And it was produced by James Franco through his company, Rabbit Bandini. Um, So essentially, they cast around for new writers, new directors. um, And they had a basic kind of storyline, which he had devised with his producers that we we had to follow. But then otherwise, we were creating these individual horror films. Uh, And the only thing was the cast had to be from his... Uh, school, which I can't remember what it was called now, but he had an acting school in LA and one in New York, and this was all through New York. Right. Um, so I was in New York for six months. We developed the project, and then we shot in Staten Island and Westport, Connecticut, which was kind of cool because that's where they shot Last House on the Left and everything. And, right. You know, that was that. And uh, we actually visited as well a summer camp on the same lake as the original Friday the 13th summer camp because for a while we were going to be in New Jersey. But that was all just me geeking out while we were filming and everything. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I do have to interject real quick, uh, and I was going to ask about this later but since you're geeking about uh, about mm. film locations since mm. you're both visiting LA yeah. I couldn't help but notice on Instagram yeah. that you both have been uh, really hitting all of the mm. the yeah. horror landmarks how's that been going I noticed you were at the Buffy High School and Lori's house from Halloween I'm surprised I haven't been arrested yet on Genesee Avenue the amount of times I go and look at the Nightmare <laughs> Elm Street house like, it's, <laughs> you know it's, it just makes me so happy to see them you know because it's all right there exactly as it appears and uh, it's been amazing i mean for me this is alex has been to la a few times before and i've only been here once and it was as a kid and we you know you do the things you do when you're a kid um yeah it's it's been insane like you 
that for me like they just seem so much smaller yeah like everything just seems so much smaller and realer than it does when you watch it on screen um i mean we we went to the house from charmed like which is a beautiful i've been to yeah, that house absolutely yeah, yeah, yeah. stunning yeah. Like, you thought it was in san francisco didn't you yeah i did it, and it looks like it but yeah the and magic so of not. tv well that that is the, the the real magic is because these these houses are on normal suburban streets and then they're a walk away from you know um, like a main highway like right. it's insane how what can feel like this terrifying little bit of suburbia in illinois is in the heart of los angeles right um and you you know you can just imagine the cast kind of like oh let's just walk around a corner to the gas station grab a whatever and then yeah. like it makes it all f- what's nice i think actually is that it makes it all feel very attainable right it makes it feel possible and i think that's the most inspiring thing that we've we've sort of gained from it is that I love oh that. they did it and they did it here and we're here and there's no difference rather than you know for for two guys that grew up in in the UK both from both from big cities but like sort of small areas is it can feel like so far away mm. and to be here and sort of seeing how it was all there and all yeah. possible is right. yeah greatly inspiring and you also grow up as a as a horror fan in the uk anyway at least we did with this kind of idea of like this beautiful pristine anywheresville america mm, and it's right. kind of amazing to discover that it's actually los angeles you know yeah. it's not these little small towns like in the movies like you know what i like about it too is it shows your commitment to genre and like no matter what you do there's that sense of being a fan like Mm. here you are telling a story you're working on an anthology project produced by one of the most famous actors in the world and you're excited to see locations from horror film that's true and i think that that's awesome (laughs) and you know uh because that probably added to the wonder of the project Mm. now and then you also then made this thing that will be out soon yes which you know it's it's going to be hopefully a really interesting um i mean it is i've seen it it's um but what was amazing was how you know, we had this cast of sort of 50, I think it was 60 people that we managed to um, utilize within these sort of 10 stories that we told. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was just amazing. You know, the amount of marshalling of just like the the physical product, because most of the things I'd done before were, you know, because it's low budget and genre, you have your five to 10 people, your two locations, your, you know, this wasn't like that. This was like a big production in a small way. Um, and it was, it was really interesting as well because, um, as everyone knows, like a lot of, a lot of the actors, uh, went into the genre and didn't. And so to get them, to get that sense going of how, you know, we were trying to tell an important moment or to, you know, to really direct, um, that was what I took away from that the most was working with the actors. Um, it was the, it was the best part of that was working with people who were relatively new on the scene, but very highly trained mm-hmm. and to try to get, and they were trained in the Meisner technique, which I had sort of made myself learn all about so I could talk more about it, you know, on their terms. And, and that was just fascinating. So, yeah. So that leads us to your newest project that you did together, the project that yeah. really founded this team. Yeah. Uh, and that's latent images. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So, um, uh, well, it, not to not to correct you. It's got, so it's called the latent image. The latent image, which My is apologies, fine. Yeah. No, absolutely fine. I mean, we've um, we've also created yeah. a um, production company using the same name as well. Yeah, um, and I think what we what we set out to do was to create something within this genre that we right. love. But 
in in a way that was on our terms, and that's by putting like an LGBTQ slant yes. onto it, and that's kind of what we what we were sort of doing with everything we were working on before. It's like, what if you had a standard slasher film, but the main character was gay? Right. What if you had, you know, the, like how can basically how can we make it gay? Like right. how like without even it being a gay movie? Right. What if there were just gay characters there, and how would that change it? Would it? Would it even? Right. Um. So with with the latent image, we kind of, we, I mean, we had so many different versions of different things and different ideas. And we, we, we found ourselves in, um, in Vancouver. Um, and we found this incredible location, um, that was the perfect for the idea of a, a writer in a cabin in the woods. Right. Um, and we sort of came up with this notion of, um, sort of the way I always described it to begin with was, uh, was like misery meets whiplash. Right. So it's, you know, this, this isolated cabin in the woods type writer and then the whiplash like misery. Uh, and then the whiplash element comes from the idea of, you know, how far would you go for your art? Right. Because what happens is a mysterious stranger shows up at the door who may or may not be fiction because he correlates so in so um so many ways to the character that he's writing in his crime thriller right that and he's been writing so long it's like who you know am i even imagining this person um and then the story just sort of progresses from there um and how how much the writer puts himself in danger based on this this um this mysterious stranger who he's both frightened of attracted to and you know yeah. There's that sort of tension there from the very beginning, and it's it's you know what it's what we laugh about this as well. It's totally an erotic thriller. I love that though. When do you ever hear erotic thriller anymore? Yeah. I feel like I haven't heard that since 1992. Well, it's time you know? to bring it back. Yeah, you it know, really is, yeah. well, and I like what the, the goal of the latent image, the production side, is you want to focus on LGBT stories. Mm-hmm. This is what you're saying. You're doing it right off the the gate with this and of course you know by founding this whole concept as a production company with that mission statement it is clearly important to you to tell Mm -hmm. queer stories uh is it just because you feel like there aren't enough out there funny you mention that we just went to see love simon yeah um and it struck me as oh this might be the first like mainstream gay teen movie I've ever seen. Right. Because there's plenty of them, but they're, I had to hunt them down as a teenager. Right. You know, I, I remember reading, I remember reading scripts of Dawson's Creek on the internet because I didn't have, it wasn't on the TV. I didn't have that many channels or whatever. And like, scrolling through for the scenes with Jack to see what would happen with his gay character because there wasn't anything for me. Right. Um, and it, yeah. It, I, I had a slightly different perception of that though because that's another one of our like 80s versus 90s. <laughs> I don't know why I feel like this and I don't know whether I've made it up in my head but I feel like and I was of course a child like literally a child but it seems like in the 1980s Here we go. It was all <laughs> so fluid. <laughs> like, I just remember feeling like, yeah, of course it's all fine. Yeah, of course it's fine. Like, look at that pop star. Look at that. Per- yeah, it's all completely mm. not. Like that was just the environment I felt like I was in. And then right. I do remember as a teenager in the nineties feeling like, oh, okay, you have to wear those colors, and it has to be oversized, and it has to be, and all right. this kind of weird repression that like appeared that I don't feel like was there. I feel like it had kind of been beaten away, and then it came flooding back. That's so interesting. 
Yeah, we have we we constantly talk about this, and I think it just comes from just like such a small period of time, mm. but such a huge difference in culture and yeah. right, like the way the way that kind of we grew up has affected so much of our sort of perspectives on things. It's it's really interesting. But when it when it comes back to the the films we want to make, I think we are kind of we both see eye to eye oh, on yeah, that. Definitely. It's just that, yeah, I think it is a thing that, like, crept in. And, and in terms of, like, Love, Simon, mm. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, same. But again, without raining on anyone's parade on it, I remember feeling like, though, but I, I did have little issues with it that, like, I just think is, again, just a time thing. Like, I felt like it It felt like it treaded around doing anything that was too gay. Mm. Right. And that's kind of something that I think is important not to do. Right. You know, I, I don't think it's... I think it's important to that the differences that there are are celebrated as differences rather than equalized across yeah. the board. Right. And again, I th- but I think it's almost an impossible feat because yeah. that's it. Like that's the only film. Right. Like if we we look back at there's been there's been Brokeback Mountain, there's been Pride. Um, I, I'm trying to think of like other ones, but when it comes to like a simple story of sort of a boy coming out. Right. Um, yeah. That in the cinema, like big budget soundtrack cast, all of that. There's that, right. and it's they can't, they literally physically can't tick all the boxes that no, would please every demographic of the gay community. And it's it's almost less to do with the film not doing its job, but just making like making a, a choice because right. it, it has to, otherwise it would just be a mess. But it's just like we were just. It's laughing. just a shame there isn't more, you know. Like my favorite scene was that um, musical montage fantasy where Whitney Houston comes on, and everyone's dressed in really bright primary colors, and he's in Los Angeles, and and then he ends that by going, "No, too gay." <laughs> and I, that was like my favorite scene, you know. And that, so. <laughs> but I do appreciate that the uh, foundations of your joint vision is to provide. Yeah that queer outlet especially in the world of horror because we are coming soon to the point where hopefully we do get our horror love simon Mm. yeah our our big gay horror movie at the multiplex i've written it (laughs) like (laughs) so uh when can people see the latent image the short well um we've got some editing to do we do we're music and post-production and because we're literally at the assembly stage because we finished shooting, as we're speaking right now, like three weeks ago. And, mm-hmm. and those three weeks have been this trip here to Los Angeles. So um, it won't. I mean, I, I, I think it'll be ready in. I've given myself the deadline of two months. couple of months. Yeah. And beyond that, what is next for you both? Well, we have in development the feature film of the Suspicion short film that I made and um, that and that was actually initially made as a graduation film from film school, which then it got expanded and, and sort of, you know, made more. Essentially, I had the idea for the feature film and then changed it to make the short film because I didn't want to give away the surprises of the feature film script in the short film. Right. Um, which is actually to the detriment of the short because I could never think up a twist that was as good. But, yeah, <laughs> it is what it is. And um, it got me into the um, Frontier International Co-Production Market at the Fantasia Film Festival in Montreal, which was this amazing experience where uh, you pitched a 
this huge audience and then all these different companies like they have Blumhouse and um, Elijah Woods production company A24 they're all there and they they essentially decide whether they want to meet with you individually then based on that massive pitch right um, and we did sort of 54 meetings in one week for this thing oh my god um, which was great but I had no voice by the end of it right um, and then from that I got associated with this company in Los Angeles who are trying to package it out to other companies for financing um so you know we have the schedule we have the budget we have uh, the script's gone through many drafts now and it's now a u.s set story which i think makes it much stronger um because it was originally written like the short film of the british setting right but the story itself it's kind of a a sort of a rope strangers on a train type story so mm-hmm. it seems to fit naturally into that like american frat world yeah. you know as well as the british upper class world like they they come together in a strange way you know right um so yeah yeah so we've got suspicions and then i think our our next immediate project will be back here in los angeles yeah. and that's going to be um sort of around september october time um and it's another short it is and uh, yeah another short and this is sort of we're stretching ourselves a little bit we're you know it's a period piece we're taking on a classic urban legend and we're we're giving it again as we do with everything a sort of a, a queer twist to it so excellent and it's also a little love letter as well to here and to Hollywood and that kind of inspiration, you know. It's like it's got a, a strong rebel without a cause meets Halloween type vibe, you know. So I love that. So that's that's kind of the next immediate one. And then at the moment, what we're trying to figure out, because obviously, you know, shorts can only get you so far. We want to come up with a feature, but something that we can realistically pull off with the means that we have. Mm-hmm. And it's just coming up with the. Uh, you know, with the concept. So we're very we're very inspired by things like When a Stranger Calls yeah. and those ones that, you know, they, they take their time and they have, you know, little, you know, few locations and, you know, one central protagonist that you're spending your time with. And one that I keep going on and on about, which is kind of like a little joke between us, is I have this little obsession with 70s TV movies and movies of the week. Oh, oh my goodness. We have to bring this up because this is really funny. (laughs) There's one called The Victim with Elizabeth Montgomery, Mm -hmm. um, where she's like, um, basically her sister's been murdered and she doesn't know. And she's in the house in the dark in the thunderstorm with the killer trying to remove the body of her sister while she's in the house. And... I mean, I, I love it for what it is, but then I showed it to Josh as like an inspiration thing. And, and, and yeah. I, I watched it with my friend and we just had a whale of a time because it's, <laughs> it's, it's a camp 70s TV movie and all that kind of implies. And the concept is incredible, but it, it's on YouTube. Like you can find it, the right. victim. The whole thing is on YouTube. We watched it one kind of like rainy Sunday afternoon and it's you know we still we still quote it he just didn't appreciate the joys of elizabeth montgomery's acting, she's fab she's fabulous she's absolutely <laughs> fabulous but, i mean the dog the dog that she has in the house is called girl so she walks around being like hey girl hey girl girl like all the time it's the best it's really good <laughs> well outside of the victim and love simon have you uh, seen anything recently that spoke to you like literally every other night yeah. <laughs> so um for, for me, like, again, a lot of the stuff that, that Alex grew up watching, I had no idea of. Right. So all these, you know, the Dario Argento films, you know, De Palma, I mean, other directors that I can never remember the name of, which right. infuriates Alex constantly. But yeah, we, Ramadou, so yeah. we watched, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, who? <laughs> we, um, we watched, um, I mean, we've watched uh, 
Deep Red. We watched Assault on Precinct 13. We watched John Carpenter's TV movie, Someone's Watching Me. Right. Like all of these. and the, A little bit of hide and go shriek just to change. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we, we're constantly watching stuff and we're constantly sort of debating and analyzing and seeing what we want to include. And so for me, like it's been such a huge... Um, like eye-opening time for someone that came from a completely different background right um that you know was very passionate but about a very sort of niche late 90s right. kind of but for me too because you've shown me things that i at yeah. the time felt went for you know when you're young and you have that those stupid like snobberies and stupid ideas <laughs> yeah about, like and you know and, and it's it restricts you from so much you know and you've shown me things that like i just yeah. wouldn't have watched at the time because yeah. i was like yeah that's not for me <laughs> so i think we complement each other very well in that regard no what i really like about you too is you uh bring teamwork to the world of horror which is something that i like to see um before we head off into the night, I have to ask, uh, do you have any words of advice for people who are out there trying to make it happen? Hmm. Do you? I would say that it's a very, seems to be a very particular moment right now that's different than what most of us have grown up believing would happen. Right. Um, because you literally just have to tr- find some way now to try to make as much as you can because the things that we maybe relied on in the past, like writing a really good script or making a really good short, seem to not be enough anymore. It's like, make shorts so you have this like catalog that you can say, oh, that's our stuff or that's my stuff, you know? Right. Um, and have the script and have as much. But it, it just seems like there isn't... it. While there may seem to be all these new outlets, and I'm really hoping there are, and that's great, it, it seems to be people say it's really hard forever it is really hard but just have as much material as possible mm. and try to be as self motivating as possible like yeah our advice from the company we were talking with just the other day about the feature that we have in development is as alongside keeping on developing this go and try and make your own micro budget one right as well as doing as many shorts and you know it it really is like a self-creating thing i think i think for me it's it's and it's hard it's really hard to do but it's 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 pinpoint what you love like find what do you love about uh, like anything right and do that just and 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 don't don't stray from that because you think it's it might be difficult or you think that people might not respond to that or not like it because they will there will be people that will love what you love so right. you know if you've connected to something figure out how you can do that and make other people connect to it as well and i think you know, because you, you can't fake it. You can't fake liking something. You can tell when, you know, actors do promo for films and stuff and they're not that stoked about the film that they're promoting. And it's, yeah, do the thing that you love. And it's been really nice meeting you, Michael, and hearing you speak about the people that you've worked with who I, I know that we're, we're fans of. And for you to say that, oh, no, they're, they're normal human beings yeah. and they just love what they do. And that's why... I, you know, the, there's no difference. Um, we're all sort of in the same, on the same team, you know? No, there is no reason in the world of creation that we need to compete with one another mm-hmm. because what you do is not what I do, is not what he does, is not what she does. Uh, I don't think in this world of filmmaking, there's no reason that everybody can't be successful. And in, to that end, we should all prop each other up because I want to see everybody's movie. Yeah. Uh, oh, moments. Single, <laughs> single tear being shed. <laughs> uh, 
where can people find you? Um, at the moment, on Instagram. Mm. You can find us on Instagram. And Twitter. And Twitter, yeah. You can find us personally on, on both. So I'm I'm Joshua Tonks on both. And I'm Alexander Birrell, or Burrell, depending on which you prefer. Burrell. <laughs> on both Twitter and Instagram. And then we have our Instagram account, um, which is Latent Image Movie. Mm. You can find us on there. Um, and we're actually in the process of launching our website, like yeah, exactly, yeah. So we're gonna have a website coming. We're gonna have a fa- we're gonna do all of that and link it to Facebook and Twitter. But we've just we've literally we've come off basically moving countries, shooting a film, and then right. having a three week break. So we're uh, we're ready to get on it now. I yeah. think. Well, thank you both so much for coming today. Thank you for having us. This was a real joy. Please keep your eye out for the latent image coming soon and Mm -hmm. everything else these fine gentlemen have to offer in the future. Uh, 80s meets 90s to bring goodness to the screen. (laughs) Thank you both. This has been Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti. Yours always in glam and gore. Good night and good luck. Good luck.